theology series, and if you've noticed, even the music is talking about God, a little bit about God and uh, who he is from his creation. Last week, we talked about how God is different from us, and this week, we'll kind of look at a little bit, try to look at how God is similar to us, and that's always a challenge because as we try to define God, as we try to say, God, you are like this, or you are like us. And uh, we're kind of discussing in theological circles, they use God's communicable attributes and God's incommunicable. It's simply a word that means kind of, if you think about the word communicate, some of God's attributes or characteristics, we can't be like. We talked about it last week, even self-existence. While you wish you could go out and be self-existent, living out on your own, you really can't. Because whether the food or the clothing or everything that was given to you to survive... Uh, we still have to exist, um, especially in today's society, with the help of others. But the incommunicable attributes are attributes that are not as similar or that God shares with his creation. And we're going to look at this, that this morning because attributes of God are kind of challenging for us to understand. They help us to learn about God, but those we cannot comprehend, we often ignore or categorize as incomprehensible. And if we're honest, all of God's character and attributes are incomprehensible. Even in the sense of love. You know, you take that, and love has been distorted. God is loving. God loves at all times. And in our minds, we have a different concept of what love is. God is holy. God is just. God is merciful. God is gracious. And while we take our English words or different words to try to describe those characteristics, we really can't fully understand them. The problem is that what often happens is that we take God's attributes and humanize them to the degree that we forget the divine quality of them because we only see them from a humanistic view as humans. Let me give you an example. As we think about the Bible, you know, we talk about some of the stories and, uh, and I could read some of how we have confused or even kids or people who don't know the Bible. There are a lot of people who don't know the Bible that well, you know, let alone the books and, and that's okay because you can learn. but. You know, let me just read some of these uh, quote-unquote misinterpretations or, or, or erroneous stories, you know, as far as even see if you, can, if you can figure out what they are. Noah's wife was called Joan of Arc. Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day and a, and a ball of fire by night. Samson slayed the Philistines with the acts of the apostles. Unleavened bread is bread made without ingredients. Moses went to the top of Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. The seventh commandment is, Thou shalt not admit adultery. Joshua led the Hebrews in the battle of Jericho. David fought the Finkelsteins, a race of people who lived in biblical times. Solomon has 300 wives and 700 porcupines. Jesus was born because Mary had an immaculate contraption. The Bible, the people who followed Jesus were called the 13 decibels. The epistles were the wives of the apostles. One of the apostles was St. Matthew. You, know, you can laugh at those because you know the truth, but sometimes you, know, you, you, you wouldn't know. Do you remember ever growing up, if you grew up in church, there was always the one pastor who would say, okay, we're going to do a sword drill. How many of you remember sword drills? Some of you ever remember sword drills? Sword drills, for those of you who, what they would do is, as a child, they would go up to help you learn the Bible. They would give you a passage, and you hold up, your Bible, and you can't put your finger in, but I'm going to do it so that I keep my 
passage, and you're, okay, hold it by the back, and you would say, okay, a passage like John 3.16, you know it. And the object is, you would repeat it, John 3.16, and then when they said go, everyone would go and try to look for the verse and then stand up. But you'd always get that one pastor, okay, turn to the book of Hezekiah, okay, Hezekiah 4.11, okay, and you'd be like, okay, I'm ready, Hezekiah 4.11, you're looking through, I know it's one of those minor prophets somewhere, there is no book of Hezekiah in case you start trying to look for it. But that's what often happens, we're deceived, we look for that. And so some of the Bible we don't always know, there's some names in there that we don't know, some events that we forget, But the Bible is like that, and it's the same way with God, because the challenge is understanding God is difficult for us, because we only relate to things that we can smell, touch, hear, feel. Sometimes it's like empirical evidence, they call it, and everything else is a mystery to us. But God has revealed himself to us, and the challenge for us is to understand that to the limited capacity that we're able to. But the danger is, you know, we understand, first of all, that God is not like us. We think of God using size, dimensions, comparing God to our father, God to our friend, any characteristics that kind of assuages our emotional um, being. And while this can help us understand God, what also happens is it distorts our view of God. If you even looked at that passage, and I forgot about that one verse, it said, Jesus, our brother. You know, and to a limited degree, you know, that's sometimes how others believe, and Jesus is always our brother. You know, Jesus is not our brother or buddy in that sense. But understanding he took upon himself a human nature. But we have this conception and idea about God, and as we read hymns, Christian music, Christian books, and listen to messages, preachers create this image of God, and it becomes very human. But we've got to remember that God is God. And so, but it allows us to understand him, but it also, we can't understand him to the fullest degree. So look in 1 Kings. Even in 1 Kings, we understand here, we have this almost a dichotomy. Because if you look in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, it states and says, here Solomon, you know, is dedicating the temple. And he's saying, but will God indeed dwell in the earth? Because The temple of God was a dwelling place, kind of the house of God, they refer to it, but God didn't live there. It's not like, you know, in our own houses, okay, some of you, we got to rearrange the furniture, we got to clean, get pest control, maintenance, you know, we got to do all these things, move around, buy new things, you know, decorate, different seasons. But that's not the house of God. The tabernacle, the whole point of that was to demonstrate that God is, if you will, Emmanuel, among, his presence is with us. And so they create... And he gave the instructions to demonstrate that. And the holiness of God, being able to dwell among people, which is almost incomprehensible. How can that occur? But behold, heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain you. Talking about the immensity of God. God cannot be confined by space, by time. He has no limitations. How much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard this prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God. Now listen to the anthropomorphisms, and those are taking human characteristics. He's going to, if you even look at here, 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 and we understand that because if, you know, they say that women speak 10,000 words, men speak 5,000, part of it is because they're repeating themselves because you ever talk to a man and a man says, his first words are what, huh? You understand, but it's, the whole point is words and listening. But here, lend your ear, and here it says, listen, 
Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplication, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and the prayer which your servant is praying before you today, that your eyes may be open toward this temple, night and day, toward the place which you said, my name shall be there, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place, and that you may hear the supplication of your servant and of your people when they pray toward this place. Hear in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Helps us understand because as we think of listening, when we want people to hear, you know, we want them to pay attention. Sometimes there are those who can listen and not be looking at the subject they're communicating with. But I don't know, there's certain children, um, if you've ever read to a child, there's some children when you read to them, you know, they're right in there, they want to see the pages. But there's some, um, I'll, my wife isn't here, she's a visiting family for a wedding, but I'll tell a story about her. One of the kids, when they were reading, you know, she was reading and she would read the story and um, she wasn't paying attention and she could actually quote it word for word. And so one of my kids, I can't remember who was, would take her face and say, no, mom, read, read, look, like looking at her, pay attention. I want you to read and look. And so she wanted her full attention. Sometimes we want God's attention. And that's okay because God lends his ear toward us in the sense that he hears us. He knows what we're going through, which is really incomprehensible because a God who has created this universe, who is vast, to actually be able to have his attention, his presence. And we're going to look at that a little bit as we come through here. But the danger is that we've created an image of God that is less than the biblical picture. If you think about Jesus Christ in Philippians 2 coming to earth, that humility. And that humility is for us is difficult for us to under, understand. And one time I was teaching um, young people, and I tried to give this example, and I still use it. Um, right now, Simon is in the fourth grade, and for his class project, they're all collecting bugs. And I heard some of the other, we were at a birthday party, and some of the other parents and the mother were saying, yeah, our kids, everywhere they go, they're looking for bugs. You know, and they keep it in a Ziploc bag on our refrigerator. I was like, oh, that's funny. We keep it in, in a Ziploc bags, different ones. And the whole family catches bugs. You know, some are alive and then they die. But they're in Ziploc bags all over our counter. Finally, I put it in a box because I don't want to see them. But the whole point is, is think about the bugs as a gross bug. And oftentimes when we think of a gross, disgusting bug, we think of the cockroach, right? You know, you see that, oh, those are gross, you know, walking through. But imagine taking a cockroach and giving it a nice kiss. You know, kind of disgusting, right? But that's how the humility, if you will, of God descending down. I mean, I can't, that's a limited picture, but God coming down to kiss us a cockroach, to care about us, you know, coming down to earth. It's descending way beyond what he, God is capable or his position. But yet he has come to earth and so... Well, because Jesus has descended and possesses a human nature, it does not justify overemphasizing his humanity. And through music, through others, sometimes we talk about God too much like he's our friend too. Like, oh, you know, he's, he's a brother and the songs are almost like a, a boyfriend, if you will. They're using these terms of affection and you have words that have distorted the true character and nature of who God is. But let's look at how God is, if you will, how can we, we can relate to God? We're not really going... I tried to think of how can I, without going into a long theological treatise, how can I help you understand how God is similar to us? And what we're going to do is, rather than that, we'll look at how we can relate to God through his revelation to us. 
And the first thing we're going to see is that God is a spirit. God is a spirit. What is a spirit? Humans possess a physical body and a spiritual nature. Okay? 1 Corinthians 6.17. If you look at 1 Corinthians 6.17. 1 Corinthians 6.17, it states and says, But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Okay, understanding that connection. Also in Romans 8.16, which I should have put first to keep you in order, but Romans 8.16, Romans 8.16 states and says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that our, we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, we may also be glorified with him. Understanding is when a believer places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the spirit bears witness. As we think of uh, the medical term or the Greek term pneuma, the spirit. We'll look at later what's called pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit. But in that is life. And we know that we are a body, but without the body, and the Bible uses the word tent or tabernacle, whatever you want to use, but it's just a dead body. But in that life, there is spirit. But what does it mean in God's spirit? You know, we know humanly speaking, you know, the female XX and the male XY chromosomes come from the mother and father, create a human life. It's not that there are spirit babies beforehand, but life created, we believe, at conception. And at that time, all the characteristics of a body and a spirit begin. The genetic components. And our spirit is both for living but also for worshiping our creator. John 4, 24. Worship him in spirit and in truth. See, worship is a form of communication on a spiritual level. We come and say we're going to worship. We're going to sing. We're going to listen to the message. We're going to, you know, pray. But there's corporate worship as we worship together. But also there is a, a spiritual worship. First of all, obviously, truth. Truth we get from God. What is truth? Because God is truth. But we also understand that on a spiritual level, we can worship God. Have you ever been camping? How many of you enjoy camping? All right. Some of you enjoy camping. You know, some of you enjoy camping as, you know, going um, to a holiday inn. Right? You know. But the whole point is, is as you go camping and maybe in a motorhome, whatever you do, and you go out and see the wilderness and the sky. And there's something majestic. We sang, How Great Thou Art. And I always think of, you know, at night looking up at the sky around a campfire, just the awesomeness of God. And you're out there just looking at creation. You're like majestic and wonder. You're like, wow. I feel so insignificant, small, but yet God. We can worship God. And God is a spirit. And it's different from our spirits. Because when we think of a spirit, we think of a, a disembodied spirit, right? Ooh, right? Or Casper. That's what we think of. A localized, um, disembodied, quote-unquote, spirit. We think of the movies. You know, that's how it is. Or scary. But that's not how God is. But yet, our spirit, what is it like? You know? We don't necessarily know this metaphysical, but we understand that God is spirit. We use that terminology. But yet, we must understand that we can worship and it's a communication on a spiritual level with God and who God is. Recognizing that God is, first of all, God. Positionally. I think even authority. 
And our spirit understands it. Our head understands that, but also spiritually understanding. There's a sincere motivation from the heart and a truthful understanding that God is the object of our worship. And that comes from a spiritual understanding. When we look around us, we recognize that, but it draws us to the fact that there is a creator. There is one who is greater than us. And our spirit understands that, and because of that, we, it's not some weakness. It is a recognition that God is there. God is present and active. But yet also, there isn't just some creator, some, you know, the big guy upstairs sitting in a rocket chair, you know how we picture God. But there is a God who is, who is personal. And that's what we look at. The next thing is that God is personal. How is God personal? If you go to the next um, slide, it says here, first of all, that implies that our knowledge is from God. God is omniscient. God is all-knowing. God isn't a God who learns as he goes along. See, we relate to God, and people have tried to make God like us. You know, and so we go along, we learn certain things. You know, if you think about violin, um, I saw a video of this violinist, and what he would do, he would, he would pretend that he didn't know how to play the violin, and he would go and have these other people teach him. And then he'd go, do you think in a week I could play this? And then he goes along, and he's, he played... He's played for like 30 years, and they're all like, I knew that you have, you know, good form and structure, but they can tell that there's been practice being able to do that. But God knows everything, how to do things. He knows what will happen. He isn't one that who learn, has to learn. But we are different. We don't know what's going on. And as we think about that knowledge that he has shared with us, he has given us intelligence, each of you are intelligent beings. You know that? Whether you, you think, well, you know, someone once said we're all ignorant, but just in different areas. But each of you are an intelligent being. First of all, you guys got dressed, you know, this morning, you know, and even that shows signs of intelligent being, you know. You know how to do that. But there's other intelligence that you can know that there is a creator, and part of that has been imparted from God because there's a personal nature. On a personal level, he's given us knowledge to know him. First of all, knowledge to know his name. We, we use the English word God. I was looking at the term Alleluia. Do you know Alleluia is a word that is not translated? And what I mean by that is that in all, every country, every language, Alleluia is the same. Maybe it's pronounced a little differently, but it's Alleluia. The knowledge of his name. He has shared his personal name with us. And this is like being given special access to God. Maybe you have a pet name. Maybe you have a nickname. You know, so does anyone have, you know, I'm not going to go into embarrassing, but nicknames. I'll share a little bit. You don't know that much about me. I don't always share a lot of things. Part of it is because of my Asian background. But I'll give you one thing. Just don't make fun of me of it. But when I was little, they used to, some of the kids used to call me Giggles. And the reason is because... Um, I could say giggle a lot of times really fast. Giggle. Giggle, 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 like that. So that's why. So it didn't last for very long, but that was just it. Some, you know, everyone wants to, hey, what's a cool thing that you can do? But the whole point is, as you learn something personal about someone, whether it's a nickname, whether it's a, a personal attribute, but a name, in the U.S., we don't have a lot of names are not as closely connected as it was back historically. And the name of God in Hebrew it's like being ex, special access to God. And in the Hebrew vocabulary, and, and it would be, I, I was going to put this on the slide, and I apologize, but Y-H-W-H. 
because there's no vowels in the Hebrew, but YHWH is a personal name for God, and sometimes we try to pronounce it Yahweh, but um, it was given to Abraham and Moses. It's used um, 6,800 and something times in the Old Testament. But after the destruction of the temple of the Romans in 70 AD, the Hebrews stopped using that word because they, for fear of mispronunciation. And so they would use the other word, Adonai. And the Adonai, they take the vowels, and Adonai, A-D-O-N-A-I, they put the vowels, and so you have Y, and then O, and then they would add it to that. So Y, um, uh, let's see, I forgot, Adonai, A, and then um, H-O-W, can't do it fast enough, A, um, and then um, W, and what happens is it became the pronunciation of it in when it, I believe, when it was translated, especially in the King James, it was thought that Y-A-H-O-W-A-H was pronounced um, Jehovah. And that's where we get the name, possible German connection with the Y being the J and the W, they pronounce it like a V. But the whole point is that they used it to mention his personal name. If you hold your spot and go to Exodus uh, Exodus 6.3. Exodus 6.3, and starting in verse 2 for context, and God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. See how it's capitalized there? And sometimes our Bibles, if it's all capital letters versus if it's a little lower capitalization, if it's capital L and then little O-R, Adonai, to help us understand that, you can always look in the front of your Bibles that gives you that key, but it says, and appeared to him and said, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, Lord, I was not known to them. And as you see that in verse, that is the Hebrew name for Yahweh, or Y-H-W-H. And the whole point of that is that personal name, and even as we look at some of the other passages there, Isaiah and also in Genesis, we understand that that personal name helps reveal about who God is. And when it's repeated, it, so the King James kind of put it in there, Jehovah, and even the Jehovah's Witnesses use that, but that's where they misunderstand the whole understanding, like Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh. And so they've tried to use that term. But the whole name reveals to us a little bit about him, that self-existent one. Even Adonai. Jehovah Jireh means what? Do you remember? The Lord will provide. It was given to Abraham. And so we have Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Nisa. And so, but it's actually Yahweh in there. And sorry, pronunciation. But it was Y-H-W-H put in there instead. But it helps us understand a little bit. Those names help reveal about who God is. It gives a little bit of, of the background my banner and so it helps us to understand comprehend that he is there he's present what he's doing in our lives so that name a name helps us give identification identify but also the knowledge of self so keep moving here he also gives the knowledge of self and not of himself but of ourselves in Luke 2:52 it talks about how Jesus grew in wisdom stature 
and knowledge. And the whole point is that mankind, if you go back to Genesis, was made in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them, both male and female. So we're made in the image of God, but what does that mean? And I was going to bring this powerful flashlight, or even the example is, if you see behind me, a little bit of a shadow. There's a shadow, and oftentimes, sometimes we don't always recognize. We know that a shadow is from an individual. It's different from a statue. A statue has a little more likeness. But the image, we know that it's a human. Hopefully you know it's not like um, an alien or something else, but it's a human as we see that shadow. But there's some characteristics that we can see. And in the image of God, when it talks about the image of God, humans, male and female, are a shadow of God, and we have, we're different from animals. We have a heightened intellect. Heightened emotion, heightened will. And we understand that we can have true self-worth and self-identity as a child of God apart from our appearances, our abilities, our position, and our possessions. It is found in who we are in God because he has given us value and worth. Oftentimes they say, oh, take pride in, in everything, your work. But where do we often try to gain, if you will, our um, self-value and worth. It is often through our appearance, our abilities, our position, and our possessions. But true self-worth and self-identity comes only when we understand that we are in God, child of God. And that's where even the fact that we are made in the image of God and there is value and self-worth in that. And that's why every life, that's why understanding even as a believer, you can take identity and, and know that Maybe you don't know your past or your future or there are so many questions, but you can still find your value, self-worth, and your identity in Christ. And we can have true purpose that gives us personal direction and even personal peace. But also knowledge of, self, knowledge of sin. And how can you know, we relate to God by looking at our own personal sin? Well, if you look at some of these passages, and let me read Psalm 14, 1 through 3. Psalm 14, 1 through 3. It says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. The fool has said in his heart, from 1 7. There's other passages that talk about that. But to understand. Guilt, conscience, a moral compass, what is the righteousness of God? It comes about, first of all, understanding that we are guilty, that we have a sinful nature. That we're sinful, that we have transgressed. The Bible uses different words for sin. That we have transgressed, committed wrong. Um, maybe if you step on someone's lawn. You know, sometimes we like to, we like to break rules. I know how some of you are, you know, we like to break rules, you know. There's this really accountant, squirrely guy, and, you know, he was at this um, restaurant, and what happened was um, this big guy came over, and um, what happens is he spills some of uh, his drink on this uh, the small accountant, and, and the accountant, or excuse me, the accountant spills the drink on the big guy. He's like, oh, what are you doing? And he starts, the accountant starts laughing. He says, no big deal. Well, he says, oh, well, guess what? You know what? Let's go outside. And what happens, he says, is that your car? So the big guy starts smashing. He says, 
I want you to come and stand in this circle and don't leave it. I'm going to go smash your car. So the guy starts smashing the accountant's car, and the little guy looks over there. Every once in a while, he starts laughing. And the, the big guy can't understand why this guy's laughing while he's smashing his car. So finally comes back and says, why in the world are you laughing? And uh, he goes, well, every time when you weren't looking, I kept stepping outside the circle. <laughs> That's a little misdirection. But understanding is that, you know, we like to break rules. So sure, I might not be able to stop that, but I can step outside the circle. And in our own ways, we want to rebel against God. But to understand here what God has enabled and connected with us is that God is personal and allowed us to understand personally the knowledge of personal sin. That each of us have guilt and are guilty. It would be one thing, as we saw with Solomon, there was a corporate body that we have all sinned. Israel understood that their corporate sin. But if we all blame the guilt on just everyone, because that's what we do in society. Oh, it's not my fault. It's his fault. It's your fault. It's so-and-so's fault. And so we try to just blame. It's on our past, our society, our parents. You know, it's everyone else's fault except for our own. But the knowledge of sin, this is a personal sin that violates God's laws and requires judgment. If you ever played darts or archery, it's missing the mark. There's different ways. If you played basketball, you know, I was looking at different ones, you know, who's some of the greatest um, shooters? Honestly, Steph Curry, it's amazing. He said that if he missed, you know, shots continually for, for a long period of time, he'd still have a better shooting record than others. Some of you are like, who's Steph Curry? Well, you know, it's just sometimes his... He's able to make a basket and gets paid for it, you know? Hey, but he can shoot him and make him from all over. But that's an example. If he were to miss, you know, he can't make every one. He's going to miss once in a while. And that's how it is, our sins. It doesn't matter if you make 60% of your shot, which is a good percentage, you're still going to miss 40. That's still not a perfect record. And that's how it is with God. We've still committed sins, personal sins against a holy God. And because of God's supreme holiness, it reveals our inadequacy. Hold your spine, go to Psalm 99, a very majestic psalm. Psalm 99. Obviously, the key here, the emphasis is talking about the holiness, the perfectness of God. He's separate from sin. Sometimes we wish we could be perfect. You know, or someone might say, oh, you're the perfect son, the perfect daughter. You know, and you can laugh at your brother and sister and, you know, try to, try to be better than them always. You'll never reach that position, but you're never perfect. And if you think you are, I could just ask your parents, your teachers, somebody. I know. There's no perfect husband. Okay, I'll tell you one more. The perfect, okay, the perfect man and the perfect woman uh, were in, on a date and they went out. And what happened was is they, they got into a car crash and um, they ran at in the snow and they ran into the car crash and they ran into Santa Claus. Now, it's not true. You know why? Well, some would say because there is no perfect man because if the, and so the perfect man, it doesn't exist and the perfect woman, well, if that were true, then, you know, probably, was she driving? But anyway, the whole point is that there is no perfect man or perfect woman because sometimes we think, oh, Santa Claus. But we try to create this conception of perfect, ideal, but we understand here in Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion. He is high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. 
The king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. And he goes on and talks about the holiness of God. The whole point is that without the knowledge of sin, we wouldn't understand our need for forgiveness. And in 1 Kings 8, 27-30, Solomon discusses the magnitude of God, but also mentions the accessibility of God. Because of our sin and our condition, we have access to a holy God who forgives our sin. And we look at that. Hebrews 9.22 even. But to understand that God's holiness, that the fact that we can have access to him. You know, that God is personal. That we can go to him, that we can run to him. That he forgives our sin. Do you understand what it means to be forgiven? There is such a relief. But yet, you know what? The problem is that sometimes we teach people, okay, say you're sorry. You know, okay, imagine this. You're in the grocery line. We'll use Fry's or Safeway or Albertsons or, or whatever you want to go to, you know, different ones. But you're, you're in a grocery store. And behind you is a kid who's got a shopping cart. You're standing in line. And what does he do? Bam! Rans it right into your heels. You've got to love that feeling, right? You're like, ow! Okay? You know, they keep doing that, right? Keep doing that. And then, you know, maybe someone will say, okay, stop that. Okay, say you're sorry. And the child says, I'm sorry. Okay, and then they go and do it again. Really, oftentimes, the, the problem is we're not really sorry. Or what does sorry do? Say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry that, you know, it didn't hurt you more. Take out your Achilles. Yeah. But what we need to understand, when, when you are sorry, when you apologize, when you say, I have done wrong, you're admitting that you've done wrong, that you, you're admitting, you're agreeing with God and saying, repent, I've, I've done wrong, I'm a sinner, and then you ask, please forgive me. Because we fail to ask for forgiveness. We just say, I'm sorry. But we don't ask for forgiveness because, you know why? It's humiliating. And no one likes to be wrong. No one likes to say, please forgive me. Because that places in, us in a position lower than you. But yet, when we come before a holy God, we need to say, please forgive me. And God, he does forgive us. He's faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there is great joy. There's great peace in knowing that you've been forgiven. But also the last thing we want to look at is that God is powerful. God is powerful. And what that means is we know that God is omnipotent. Omnipotent. You know, what does that mean? He is all powerful. He can do all things. They're consistent with his will. And even in Genesis 18, 14. You might wonder why this verse, but look at Genesis 18, 14. It states and says, allow me to read it. It says, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Boy, I hope that doesn't happen to me, right? Some of you are thinking, you know, how old was Sarah? You know, advanced in age. And they have a child she's like oh yeah you know what that's not going to happen is anything too difficult for god god can do things but also god chooses not to do things that's what we must remember but yet god who created the universe and sustains all our known existence can still aid us in our time of need god is powerful god can deliver us from sin we know it as jesus but the hebrew word for jesus is yeshua 
And the word means Jesus saves. <coughs> Excuse me. God had a plan to deliver men and women from sin. Why did God permit sin to occur? Sometimes we wonder, why did God allow sin? Is God the author of sin? God is not the author of sin. But people say, well, he must be because it exists. But why did God create humans with the ability to sin? Because God had a plan to teach us about himself. We aren't robots. We aren't just things that uh, as we, in response, we have to praise God. We have to do that. And sometimes we wonder, why would God do that? Allow for people who turn away from him, who don't even recognize him. I mean, think about in our society how many people turn away from God. And it almost disgusts us. It's like, why? You know, if you look at what God has done, you don't believe in him. And people would say, well, why do you believe in him if he allows everything, bad things to happen to good people? Well, why does God allow any good to happen to anyone? Hopefully you can think of some good things that occurred in your life. Not just by chance, not just by fate or luck. But God is all-powerful and understanding it teaches us about him. Forced servitude, forced love. You know, it's, it's one thing. You are a child, so I'll, I'll start from there. Imagine you're a child, you were a child at one time, and you wanted something from your parents. First of all, you would always know who it was, your mother or your father, who would be more willing to give it to you. might depend on what it was. Secondly, what was your plan of attack? Sometimes you'd be like, hmm, I'm going to do some nice things. You know, make my bed, I'm going to do the dishes, or I'm going to get everything ready, you know. And, <coughs> and you know, they always say, oh, you know, Mom, I just love you so much. Or the Father, you know, Dad, I just love you so much. You are such thankful so much for working so hard. What's the parent's natural response? Yeah, they'll be like, okay, what do you want? Or what did you do? You know, because usually it might be, okay, what did you do? They know that. They know it's insincere. They'll say the words. But think about times when, you know, you go into your, um, your parents or a, a child, you know, a child comes to you and they sincerely say, you know what, I love you. Thank you so much for doing something for me. It's heartfelt. And as we think about worship, as we think about love, you know, to understand God, God desires our heartfelt worship. Not insincere, not even, you know, because we have to. Part of that's going to be, you know, we do things because we have to, but, but to take time and just meditate on who God is. And there's that sincere worship. Because think about what God has done for us in the sincerity. In the sincerity of worship, God has delivered us from the effects of sin. See, sin separates us from God, and sin leads to death and destruction, and sin deceives and turns people away from God. Yet God still cares about us and loves us. God teaches us its effects and helps us understand them. We see the effects upon creation. We see the effects upon people. We are all going to physically die. Sin separates us from God, from others, from our loved ones, and from obtaining true peace. Only God can transform our perspective and cancel its effects because we only see it from ourselves. Only a God who is greater than sin can cancel its effects. Someday we will be removed from the effects of sin. But also, God delivers us from the bondage of sin. For the sake of time, I won't look those up, but you can look up those. And Romans are close. You know, we know those passages about sin and Paul explaining them. The bondage of sin. 
Paul talked about the bondage of sin. You know, the things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I want to do, I don't do. Seems like it has a hold on me. And, you know, the bondage that plagues our conscience and causes us personal strife and interpersonal problems. You know, the bondage of sin sometimes will cause interpersonal problems. It enslaves us and we cannot overcome. Sin traps our bodies, our minds, and our lives. People are caught in sin. I mean, look at the effects, even through drugs, alcoholism. You know, there are things that cause us pain. And it's like, can we overcome it? And on our own, we can't overcome them. Sin, the bondage of sin offers no hope, only more pain and emptiness. And like I said, it's like a drug that you'll never be able to be free from. But yet in Christ, we can overcome. Not in our own strength, but in Christ. And then also God delivers us from the penalty of sin. God delivers us from the paid penalty. He paid the penalty for our sin through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our faith in Christ is the vehicle by which we're able to gain eternal life to partake in the divine nature. And see, too often people ask why God is not more merciful and loving. When we view the past and see what God has done for us, yet how many people, as I mentioned, reject God and do not believe? And those who say they, you know, I'm a Christian, but yet aren't following after him. I mean, think about how many people say that they're a Christian, but yet they're still going to mistreat you, cheat you, you know, they can say they're a Christian business, a Christian. I mean, I, I could probably look out and ask you, okay, have you ever been, you know, has a Christian ever taken advantage of you, a person who says they're a Christian or a Christian who has mistreated you? I'm sure. But yet, when we view the past and all God has done for us, and look at how many people reject God, who do not believe, and those who say they do aren't living for him, but yet... God is powerful enough to make all people believe in him and be saved, yet he's far wiser than us to design a plan that teaches us that our worship of him is not a mere act of conditioning. Conditioning, conditioning, you're supposed to do this, but a personal and powerful act of love in which our spirit communicates with his spirit in a way that he designed. True power does not force or coerce. You know, even in our own country, we understand that. In other countries, you know, even looking at, you know, the word communism and, and socialism, some of those things, that, whether it's coercion or even as we look biblical times, everyone bow down to the statue. Everyone do that. Some do it out of peer pressure. Some do it because of fear of threat of what would occur. I don't want to be thrown in that fiery furnace. But yet true power does not force or coerce but compels us to love and serve him out of our limited understanding of him. The fact that we can know a little bit about God and then we follow and serve him. God's attributes are amazing and the more we learn about them, the more awesome we understand him to be. So let me give that premise to you again. How is God similar to us? Really not much. And that is why we need to worship and love him more because when we live Humanly, uncharacteristically. When our lives don't necessarily represent the response that others would do in the same situation. When humanly, we don't respond humanly, our sinful, sinfully. When we love our enemies, do not seek revenge. When we are waiting and praying and trusting God when all seems hopeless, represents a God 
who has changed us to be like him and is changing us daily to be like Christ. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you for what you have done and who you are. And as we think about to be in Christ, as we think about God, Lord, I pray that we might, first of all, worship you. Lord, there are so many who don't see a God who is there. They might just dismiss you. They don't live like there's a God. They don't talk to you. They don't fear you. They don't respect you. God, I pray that we would take time to understand that you hear us. You help us. You direct our steps. And when we read the word, when we understand more about the fact, even incomprehensibly, that we can have a, a relationship with you. No, it's not going to be like with our friends, playing a video game, throwing a ball, being able to talk to you. But God, you are there. You hear our prayers. And even as we've heard in scripture, and you know what is going to take place. And what it is is your presence. And to know your presence. You have promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And that's what we need. Through your spirit communicating with our spirit. Knowing that you are with us. And there's times where there be difficult times. Where there be alone times. That we can know that you are with us. And that's all we need. And when we worship you when we communicate to you and talk about you, telling you who you are, that you are a holy God, that you are a just God, that you are magnificent, that God, we love you. Our spirit can communicate and worship you. So let me ask you this morning, have you truly worshiped God the Father? First of all, do you know who God is? You might know that there is a God, but have you ever repented of your sins, placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life? It begins there. Because without that, you can't, you don't know the Spirit of God. But the Bible says that if you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can have eternal life. His Spirit indwells you. If you've never done that, I would encourage you to do that. But maybe you're here this morning and and you've tried to live the Christian life, but you really haven't exemplified or grown in your Christian life. To understand, to have a personal intimacy with God. And I'm not talking about a physical intimacy, but an intimacy of knowing that God's presence is with you. Communicating daily. As you read the word of God, the, the words coming almost to life, to know the power and truthfulness of that. They that worship him must worship him in spirit, but also in truth. So many in our society have distorted God and said, God, you are, are this God. Please give me this. Give me this. Give me this. But when's the last time you said, God, you are awesome. You are powerful. You are mighty. You are holy. You are just. You are righteous. And I praise you. We don't always understand what is going on. God, we ask you to forgive our sins. We are thankful for who you are. And we praise you for what you're doing. God, you answer our prayers. You sometimes give us things that we want, but sometimes you give us what we don't want. But yet we know it's for our good. Maybe not at the time. But Lord, sometimes you don't give us what we want because it'll hurt us. It'll change us. It'll turn us away from you. 
Lord, help us be connected to you in a spiritual worship and understanding. Lord, I pray that we would know that we can turn to you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.